welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we talk to students, educators, and thought leaders who are innovators and creatives in education. I'm your host, Tanya Sheckley. Thanks for joining us. Hi, everyone. I'm here today with Kyle Wagner. Kyle is the founder and lead consultant of Transform Educational Consulting Limited where they help forward-thinking schools use project-based learning for socially, globally, and emotionally aware citizens. Welcome, Kyle. Thanks, Tanya, for having me. I'm so glad we get a chance to talk. I'd love to hear more about your journey in project-based learning and what led you to really believe in this as an educational methodology. Yeah, it's been 15 years, I guess, on this journey uh, as an educator, 12 of which have been spent with project-based learning. Uh, more specifically as a focus. And I got my start back at High Tech High. I was in San Diego and heard about this school that was doing some uh, amazing things. It was 15 miles away. I went to this Bonanza Day, which is the replacement for an interview process. You know, typically you go in, you interview, you teach a sample lesson. This was, you teach a sample lesson, you put a project together with a team, uh, you get interviewed by the students. You um, also get interviewed by all the different, you know, members of the leadership team. And it really it was almost like kind of a design thinking way of just, you know, working through this whole day and them seeing, you know, how you do with all this kind of like uncertainty and flexibility. And the first time through, I didn't get it because it was just so obscure for me. And I realized I had a lot of work to do, went back and really tried to, to hone in on my craft at that other school I was working at and just get better at being flexible, really, and being a facilitator rather than the stage on stage. And went back to the other bonanza and got the position. And from there, it's been about spreading that mission all over the world. And I'm here in Hong Kong now trying to to continue and and foster uh, those kind of experiences for schools and students. So was there a specific experience or a specific project that you remember from school or like a first project that you did as a teacher that really made you think like, wow, this is a different way of teaching and this is really effective and I need to continue on this journey and learn more? Yeah, I would say, and that was even pre high tech high, you know, I, uh, and a lot of people get to start with this. I had a gifted and talented class. I mean, I will strongly affirm and say that I think project-based learning is for everyone. However, this is what was reserved for the gifted class. They got to do this extension kind of work. And just watching them, it was around just civilizations and them putting together a civilization wherever they wanted it to be placed and really going through the whole kind of framework of what a great civilization needs from the laws to the economic structure and then watching them trade between their civilizations. And this is really kind of a big simulation, but a project and just watching the way in which they latch onto that and uh, how you have such different kind of ideas that came out of it. And that experience really helped me see the power of it. And at High Tech High, I tell everybody, you know, when you first jump into project-based learning, you think back when you were a student, right? And the projects you created. And I think of a project I created where I created a, a medieval castle, but everybody created a medieval castle. And yes, there was some deviation in terms of our castles. It was exciting, but I don't know if there's a lot of learning that happened through it. And You know, at High Tech High, I realized that when you're really doing project-based learning well, you're learning through the project. And it took really three years to be able to say, okay, I'm not just doing projects with students. I'm actually transforming the way in which they think 
which they learn in which they team and, you know, how they think of their capabilities. Yeah, we talk about that a lot, like as professional development and in our school, the difference between doing an activity and actually doing a project. You know, there's lots of activities to do with learning and all of that's important too for hands-on learning and understanding individual concepts. But then how do you incorporate that into a larger project that has a deeper meaning and a bigger focus for the students? Yeah, and- yeah precisely. I mean, you, you pretty much hit it, the, the deeper learning experience. And some people literally think, oh, I, you know, I'm just working with school now. And they're like, okay, we're going to do three projects this week. I'm like three projects this week, like projects, you know, and then they <laughs> described it. And, you know, one is like, okay, first they're going to just redesign their classrooms. Then they're going to redesign the uh, gymnasiums or their performing arts center, then they're going to redesign a future school. And they're all like separate projects. And, you know, it's trying to get them to see, well, actually, there's a big, deeper driving question to these whole experiences. And, you know, how do we, how do we design a, a more inclusive or future 21st century type of school that accommodates for all learning needs? And then, yes, there's activities that are packed into that, but the project and the big question is driving it. So we're probably on the same page in that. Yeah, I'm curious. You mentioned that your first kind of project in the Civilizations Project was really with a gifted and talented class. And that's mm-hmm. something that I've heard a lot of is that the projects and project-based learning is reserved for the gifted students and something extra for them to do. How do you you know, work with students and work with faculty in bringing that into a full curriculum for all students that can be inclusive and helping them to see that it's really not a gifted program, but it's how all students can learn? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think initially some of the first questions I even ask really with the school is, do you have, you know, an inclusive type of environment for students? And if they, you know, have all of these different streams and all these different classes and they have the AP and they have their honors classes or their college prep, usually I would will try to steer away from those kind of programs because it's really their mindset. Their mindset is already kind of locked into, you know, this is just reserved for the the, the advanced kids. So First, you know, I'll find out how inclusive is their environment already. And given that they have a more kind of inclusive environment, that they're running these kind of project-based experiences and they're running it across an entire class. And when it comes to the groupings uh, for students within these projects, you know, really being mindful um, about not just grouping students according to their ability levels, grouping students across ability levels. Um, If they're developing a business, so case in point, some of the best businesses when it came to this project-based experiences were developed by those students who were typically labeled as the non-gifted, you know, remedial type of band students. And they excelled in this project because they had a different kind of skill set. They had a different kind of intelligence. You know, they were very good with people. They were very persuasive. And their business just took off. Uh, and it was a tech business. And this other business couldn't even get it off the ground. They were developing board games. And they spent literally two months developing one board game, had not tested it with anyone, got anybody's feedback because they wanted to perfect it. And those tended to be those, you know, typical high achievers, you know, who had played the game of school. So really when I go in is, is asking schools to let's first design a project-based experience. Let's make sure it's inclusive. Let's watch and observe. Let's reflect and see how we can help, you know, all the students to shine through it. Um, but really having that, that kind of reflective mindset and that open mindset to know that this is going to be something that everybody, every student is going to come at from a different lens. 
and differentiation is going to happen naturally throughout that project because each learner is going to have a different skill set that they can bring in. What a wonderful example of the kids that, you know, are really, really strong socially and maybe can talk to kids and get a different perspective and get different ideas and draw people in really excelling in a project. What was their tech project? Uh, so their tech remember? was all these like basic kind of office type of tools. They had like these laser pads. So you, you touch somewhere, right. And you'd be able to have a keyboard and you, you know, it wouldn't even have the, the uh, keys keys on it. So there's some tech products that they were developing. There's some tech products that they were basically uh, getting from Taobao in China and then reselling. So it was a whole kind of tech business around that. And they had a kind of a simple uh, logo and it was just tech making work easier, you know, or facilitating easier work or making work fun, something like that. And uh, it really just, it, it really took off with students. So it sounds like they actually did their business. Like it wasn't just a project creating a business and writing a business plan and like in theory, but they actually did the business. Yeah. And that's an important distinction. You know, I've worked with curriculum directors before and uh, they've, they've worked out and said, okay, let's have this capstone project and the kids are going to be doing all this research and they're going to write up a proposal and it's going to end there. Right. And you're like, wait, but there's going to be action. It's like, no, there, that, that could be reserved for high school or something. And I think you and I both, you know, we see as the entrepreneur mindset, you know, is like, no, you've got to take action right away because the business plan as we all know, or the proposal that you're going to run, you know, never goes as planned. So yeah, they, they had an opportunity to sell these products uh, to other students. They got some feedback. There was multiple different selling days. It was part physical, and then they moved it online. You know, and the thing about these project-based experiences as a teacher, you do set a clear floor. You say, yeah, they're going to be producing a business plan. They're going to be pitching it and getting investment for it. And once they get investment, they're going to do some selling and we're going to arrange a time for them to sell. But beyond that, they can take it any direction they like. And a lot of these businesses, you know, these, these kids kept these and try to see how they could expand it and start their own online shop. So this is when you know you're kind of succeeding with a project-based experience is that it really never ends. The project never sleeps. And these were middle schoolers? Yeah. These are 12-year-olds. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like so much that, fun. Right? You got some projects that are doing up Academy, right? Where they've where they're organizing strikes, you know, and they're organizing big, big events with the community and they're six, seven years old. So, <laughs> yep. They organized a protest March two years ago. Our second graders did a, a market and an entrepreneurship event. And actually it was one of my daughter's um, new year's resolutions this year. I'm like, what do you want to do this year? She's like, I got to sell the rest of my inventory from my business. <laughs> <laughs> What's she selling? She, uh, she had made dresses like, um, I don't know if you know, pillowcase dresses, so she had yeah. learned how to use a sewing machine and worked out three different sizes. So they were small, medium, and large, and she made a bunch of dresses. And then she put together uh, all the pieces for a robot kit and the directions and so sold the kit. So it's like foam and eyeballs and pipe cleaners and bottle caps for wheels and like the, the ability for a kid to make their own little car robot from this kit. And then there was a book that she had written about our dog. And so she had that photocopied and laminated and spiralized and was selling copies of her first self-published book. <laughs> wow. Yeah. At nine. And is she doing this during class time or school time? Or is she also like at home kind of working on these things? A little of both. It was an in-school project, uh, but it definitely bled into home time. 
Wow. I mean, that's incredible, right? I mean, how, how many kids have this? We have sometimes this 20 time or passion project time, right? But how many, how many kids have this opportunity in school to do that? And that, that one you're mentioning too, about the, the kits for the robot kits. I would love if you somehow sent me, if she has a website somewhere, because this same dilemma has been coming up here with like, how do we teach STEM or robotics in a virtual environment, you know, and there's all this whole talk of kits, you know, coming home. And I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of teachers that latch onto that and want, want to order their own kits. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. We hadn't even thought that big. Yeah. She's got a few of them in a bin in our garage still. She's like, I need to sell these to the neighborhood kids. Cause they're just sitting at home and doing zoom learning. There, like you're right. there you go. <laughs> Come on. This is like the lemon lemonade stand on steroids. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So what, when you're working with schools, what do you see as the biggest challenge of implementing project-based learning? Yeah, that's a that's good a question. small question. Uh, <laughs> small question. I know. Well, we always start out with, uh, with any group I'm working with with hopes and fears, and that's from every stakeholder. Um, and it's diff- The challenges are different, right? The t- challenges from a teacher's perspective, because to be honest, I think a lot of teachers, a lot of the education world wants to do this. Uh, we know the impact it has on student learning. A challenge is standardized test. I mean, let's put it right out there. There's a benchmark that's different from what we're asking, the kind of experiences we're asking teachers to create. The benchmark to measure those experiences is is not this, the kind of benchmark that matches those learning experiences at all. So that's a huge challenge, right? I mean, what I also tell schools is, you know, from a leadership team, their fears are, of course, you know, their parents, that's their biggest fears. A lot of times with the leadership team, you know, we got to appease our parents. We got to get our test scores up. So everybody has to answer to this, you know, higher up in the hierarchy. And uh, so those are some of the, the challenges. We got a curriculum to cover. We've got test scores that we need to ensure are going up and standardized tests to maintain. We have a schedule that doesn't really allow for a lot of flexibility. You know, kids are going to five, six classes a day in a 50 minute period. Yeah, we can offer project time, but really how deep can that go? And, you know, some people view a perception of, you know, students aren't ready, perhaps, or I have, you know, students have too many learning needs to be able to, you know, flourish in this kind of environment. So those are some big obstacles. And I'm sure probably one of your questions is, well, how do they overcome those, right? <laughs> um, That'd be a great next the- question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'd take it one step further and be like, okay, if, if all of that went away, like what is the dream, uh, what does the sure. dream schedule look like? And then what does assessment look like, you know, if there aren't standardized tests and right now we're in a period of time where a lot of them went away for a lot of people. So yep. what, you know, then what does assessment look like for project-based learning? And if you could create any environment and schedule in school day, what would that ideal look like? Great. I like that. That next question, you're, you're looking at these opportunities. I would say now that tests have gone away for at least the schedule, you need longer blocks of time uh, to really engage in this. You can't have, you know, 45, 50 minute class periods. And an easy way to do that is just combining a few subjects you know, as opposed to sending kids to five or six subjects, like one of the structures we had a place in high tech high is we had humanities and then we had math science. So these, and then the kids were going to an elective. So they already had almost only three blocks really throughout the day. So you can really get into deeper investigation, deeper project work because you have like 90 minute block periods of time. 
So my first thing was, is to ask schools, if you can, to combine a few subjects. Now, some schools can't because the teachers are you know, teaching in all different places, or at least open up an afternoon of time that they can do that. So you can still engage in more traditional learning in the first half. And you know, you're getting all that content and skills. And I strongly ask them to make that related to the deeper experience of the project that they're running. But even if not, at least have an afternoon block of time. Um, some schools are taking a week off the timetable and just dabbling into it and experiencing what it might be like to have like a week long type of project week. So once you have that time freed up, then it's, it's time to start looking at your assessment measures. And again, if you just have paper pencil tests, it's not really going to work in a project-based environment. So we mentioned a few projects like the business project where you have a proposal or a business plan. These are authentic assessments where you really can actually assess standards because within that they're writing an actual formal piece of writing, which is mm-hmm. something that the English language arts teachers already have to assess anyways. But now it's looking at those standards within the project. And so you can still pull out, okay, here are the academics. Here's how the student's doing. You can have that conversation. And then you could start looking at some more holistic forms of assessment, which I would say portfolios of work tend to work well that students are are developing through these projects. So changing the schedule, getting some teachers together on an idea, and then looking at more authentic forms of assessment are some of the starting points. Have you seen kids at this point going forward, kind of going into high school or going into college using portfolios as opposed to test scores, you know, instead of saying, hey, I've got a 4.0 grade point average or 4.4 or whatever the highest GPA is these days into like, here's my portfolio and here's what I've accomplished. And here's me pitching this business plan that my team came up with. Have you started to see that shift? I have seen that shift in terms of schools using them. I haven't seen it as much as I think we would both like to see in terms of college admissions, just because college admissions have such a large pool of candidates that they've got to, you know, weed through them quite quickly and GPA and test scores like SATs. And then the essay, you know, tends to be that kind of first tier that they're able to funnel down. Um, But I, what I will say is for that actual college essay, if a student has a portfolio of work, what it does is actually helps them to start tell their own story, right? Like they can see how one project and even this project you're talking about your daughter working on is leading to, okay, I first developed this robotics kit. I I learned a a little about business. And from that, you know, I started to expand that out and, and learn that my passion really was robotics. And, you know, then I started working on some coding and I designed this video game, whatever it is, they have a story now from that portfolio of work. Yes, they have the portfolio of work handy if they need it, but it really builds that confidence and that story for that student so that they can stand out. Once they've gone through that first funnel, when it comes to university, they can now share with that, you know, university admissions counselor, okay, here is, you know, exactly where I add value. And they know when it comes to university, what they want to do, what they want to pursue. And even if they don't want to pursue university or it's a community college, or they want to even start their own business at a younger age, they are more empowered, I think, through this whole development of a portfolio. That's what I was thinking as you were talking about the differences in students and maybe some of the students who hadn't done as well in grades, but really excelled at the project, like how empowered and how self-confident they must feel in themselves after being told by an educational system, you know, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, like you're, you're not as good as these other kids, you're not getting as good as grades, you're, 
you know, falling behind in whatever fashion and then to suddenly excel in a project like this must be really amazing to watch them flourish that way, but also for their own self-esteem and self-confidence and building. Yeah. And you see that sometimes does spill into academics. So they might not be as great as, you know, some of the traditional way of learning, but if they start to be empowered, you know, they're confident, like that confidence can then, you know, easily feed into and stream into those subjects that might like math that might've been taught more traditionally, uh, just because they've at least found the way they learn. And I will say something that I've been super fired up about are the future skills and what are the future skills. And number two is active learning and active learning strategies. And I'm thinking, you know, how much have we been taught how we learn, you know, through school, we're taught to learn and we're taught to, to give evidence that we're learning based on what the teacher's standards are, but how about how we learn? And once students can figure that out, they can apply that and transfer that to any kind of subject or skill or, or career that they're, they're trying to pursue. Yeah, that's a great point. And I was going to ask you, you know, you're doing a lot of work right now too around incorporating project-based learning and incorporating schools and curriculum around the sustainable development goals. And so I was going to, you know, wanted to ask you more about that and what that work looks like as you're, you know, developing the educational philosophy encompassing SDGs and PBL and all of these things. Yeah, good uh, question. I mean, I think the SDGs are a great starting point for a lot of this work for a lot of people because we continuously talk about transdisciplinary experiences. And, you know, we ask teachers to come up with these project based ideas. And sometimes we'll try to link the traditional subjects together and then come up with something that's quite arbitrary. But SDG goals that have come out, you know, whether it's uh, clean water and and sanitation, whether it's no poverty, whether it's uh, sustainable cities, like these are great inspiration for some bigger kind of projects that are actually having some global impacts. And so because there's so much attention around those and there's, there's so much talk around those, um, and it's having an impact that's beyond just your school. It's a great kind of starting point. So, you know, I've just been kind of exposed to those, to be honest, through some schools that I was working with, that once they developed their projects, they would just stick the SDG goal in the, they'd have the handout, they'd have the parent talk around what students can be doing. They just put the SDG goal in the top right corner. And it started to just create this kind of theme around these experiences as being, hey, this is more than just a project, a fun project, but these kids are actually tackling some big problems. And so from that, seeing that this is something that schools are really latching onto is just trying to create a framework around how do projects fit into this bigger picture. And the last thing I will add is that I don't recommend people start from the SDGs and try to develop projects around those. I think they look at their community and they look at the immediate needs of their community And this is going to be inspiration for projects, whether it's a local elderly center, it's rebuilding a playground and creating more play spaces or more bike paths. And of course, that's going to link to these larger uh, SDG goals um, so they can start to think about those those bigger impacts once they get confidence in in addressing on a community level. Yeah. And it it also, I think, really helps schools become part of the ecosystem of the community. Um, and allows students to learn from not only from their educators, but from other people in the community and other specialists. And, you know, the the city civil engineer that designs the bike paths and the bike path, you know, example, or, you know, how do you work through a city to create these things, which just gives more life skills 
Um, but that's a really good way to look at it instead of looking so big at the SDGs to start with, like what what's in our community and how can we make a direct impact here? And then yeah. how does that get bigger? Yeah, well, you, you touched on a good point too. The, yeah, the ecosystem, the school should fit really into the ecosystem of the community, you know, and there's a lot of places where the school becomes a central focus point for the community because they literally are, you know, bringing in, uh, they're teaching elderly, you know, skills, upskilling them in certain tech things, you know, uh, they're, they're working with the civil engineers to design, you know, more sustainable uh, paths, you know, when it comes to social justice issues, there are stakeholders as well. And everybody in that way becomes a stakeholder. And the school can kind of be this lighthouse, as opposed to being very, you know, insular, and just doing learning that is associated with the school and not being a beacon light for the community. And, and one shout out really quickly to uh, Medford Center, which is a program that I've been exposed to just kind of recently, where they've, it's called the Medford Center for Citizenship and Social Responsibility. And it just started as an after school program and kids could design any projects that they want around the community needs. And you've got kids designing safer roadways by putting in the crosswalks, making it appear 3D so people slow down. Uh, these students who are addressing issues um, of equity within their community and they put slave memorials up and they've worked with uh, some of the NGOs to be able to do that. And they've held at these public exhibitions. And, you know, these students are seven to 16 years old. They're working across age groups. They're working with multiple stakeholders. And now they're trying to feed that into the curriculum and how school works. So there's really no... uh, no end in terms of how you can really use these uh, SDGs and the school as an ecosystem uh, to make some big impact. Yeah. What a, what a great program and what a unique idea. I'm picturing like a full after school program now that's all passion projects and yep. really, you know, having an educator as a facilitator and, you know, the ability to throw out standards all together and like, what do you want to do? That would be super exciting and fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll share that with you. A link to it. Absolutely. So I know, you know, I know um, I run an elementary school and I love to ask people like what their favorite memory is from elementary school might be like a story or a teacher or a class or a project. But if you have any memories from that period of your life that you can share with us. Well, okay. This is, this is going to be bad because it's, it's not project based and it's, probably not the best form of learning, but it is a memory (laughs) that I have. And uh, I was a spelling bee champion back in second grade. And I specifically, (laughs) because I was, I was one of those kids that was really good at school. Like I was a school boy. I mean, I was an educator now, like I'm super fired up about it. But uh, I remember I had one arch rival and he was my best friend. We, we'd play basketball together uh, we compete in spelling bee contests together. We go on trips together. And he was the spelling bee like champ. Like nobody touched him. That's everybody talked about him as a spelling bee champ. And I would always, you know, try to beat him. And there's one year where it came to that, you know, final spell off. And it was just me and him. The mic goes out on him as he's spelling his word and he spells it incorrectly. And they have this whole deliberation as if did the mic cause him to spell the word incorrectly or do you just not know it? And they finally decide, well, you know, if Kyle can spell this word correctly, he will win the spelling bee. And I don't remember actually what the word was, but I did spell it correctly. And uh, that was my moment of fame in elementary school. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. 
That's awesome. Yeah, a completely non-project based related memory. Like I remember doing the time tests and I was really good at addition and subtraction and I got my multiplication ones and I never completed and passed my 100. I think it was 100 questions in a minute, like time test that you had to do for your basic, you know, numeracy skills of addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. And I never passed my division one. So, oh, your division one, but you're so your addition and subtraction were. My addition and subtraction are solid. Yeah. (laughs) Do you still see that today? Is division tough for you? Uh, I've gotten better. (laughs) But in all honesty, it's not something that I use super frequently. And I I have a handy calculator everywhere I go. (laughs) So, yeah, and I have spell check as well. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny to remember that. Well, thank you so much. How can people get in touch with you if they'd like to reach out? Yeah, I, I guess, you know, email is best to just start a conversation. Um, if you're interested also in learning more about kind of the work I do with, with schools and how I might be able to support you, it's transformschool.com, transformschool and then .com. And then if you want to just search up YouTube, just search up Kyle Wagner, subscribe to the channel. I have a playlist for school leaders of videos on how you can start making these shifts to allow for these project-based experiences. And then I have one for uh, teachers in the shifts in your classroom to allow for these as well. And those are YouTube channels? Yep, that's YouTube. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Tanya. Thank you for listening to the Rebel Educator Podcast. To learn more about us, visit rebeleducator.com, where you can learn about our professional development opportunities for educators and students and see our project library. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, check out our progressive, inclusive elementary school, Up Academy, at upacademysf.com. We'd like to say a special thank you to Atmosphere for use of their audio track, Miho. Thanks again for joining us, and we wish you well no matter where your educational journey may lead.